Always acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. In 1973, two researchers at Princeton University, John Darley and Daniel Batson, did what is, in my opinion, one of the most interesting psychological experiments that's ever been conducted. They recruited 67 students from Princeton Theological Seminary to participate in this study, and they invited them to come into a laboratory on campus, and they gave them a whole bunch of questionnaire things to fill out. Questions about their motivation for being in ministry, if they felt like they had been truly called to this work to make a difference in the world, what they hoped to accomplish in their careers. And then they gave them a task at the end. They said, here's a passage of scripture. And it was from Luke 10. It was the story of the Good Samaritan that we just heard. They said, we want you to prepare a short sermon on this story. We're going to give you a few minutes to do this, and then we're going to ask you to go one building over where uh, an auditorium has been set up and another professor is there who will evaluate your sermon. Half of, uh, excuse me, a third of the students were told, you've got plenty of time to do this. Take your time, write a good sermon, whenever you're ready, just go on over to the building next door. A third of the students were told, uh, you know, time is of the essence. You need to keep the show going and <laughs> write your sermon as quickly as you can and then move next door. And a third of the students were told, it took you too long to fill the questionnaire out. You are already late. The professor is next door already waiting on you. So you better hurry it up. What the students didn't know is that the researchers had hired someone to stand outside in the alleyway between the two buildings. And this person stood there moaning in pain and doubled over. And the true purpose of the experiment was to find out how many seminary students who had just spent a few minutes writing a sermon on the story of the Good Samaritan would stop and help someone on the sidewalk clearly in need of help. Overall, about half of the students stopped to help, which is it's good news, okay? So about half. But what the researchers found was that the time constraints that these students were given was the biggest factor in determining whether or not they would stop to help. In the students who were, among the students who were told they had plenty of time, more than 60% about 65%, in fact, stopped to help the person who was doubled over in pain, asking for help. Among the students who were told time is of the essence, don't delay, almost half, about 45% stopped. But among the students who were told, you took too long, you're behind, someone is already waiting on you next door, less than 10% stopped to help. More than a sense that God had called them to ministry, more than a desire to make a difference in the world, more than being a light of hope to people around them. The biggest factor was the time constraint that they were under. I first heard about this story about eight years ago um, because it was part of a talk that was given by another psychologist, a professor whose name is Daniel Goldman. 
And if you know that name, Daniel Goleman, you probably know it from his most famous work, which is in the field of emotional intelligence. And emotional intelligence is really about our ability to read and understand social and emotional cues. People who have a high degree of emotional intelligence are able to, to see how someone else is feeling or acting or responding. And they're able to interpret that information accurately. But not only what, how other people are feeling, it also is the interpretation of your own emotions, to know how you're feeling and to be able to understand that. And then you use all of this emotion data from yourself and from others to act in the way that's most appropriate most comforting, most helpful in that situation. So when we are busy and preoccupied, like these seminary students who are on their way to give a sermon, we miss those things in our environment and in ourself that become important information for how we should respond. And Professor Goldman has, like most psychologists, tried to extend this to our modern age where most of us are constantly distracted by our cell phones, by emails and social media and text messages, the constant bombardment of information that we get. He says that when we are paying attention to the screens in front of us, we are missing the social cues around us that can help us understand and respond to our world appropriately. Because here's what Professor Goldman and his colleagues have discovered in a lot of their research. We are literally hardwired as human beings to see other people's emotional reactions and to respond. In fact, there is a neural circuit way in our brain that goes directly from our eyes and from our ears to the emotional parts of our brain. So that when you see someone else who is happy, you feel happy yourself. When you hear someone else's cries of distress or pain, you feel that pain in your own body. We bypass the thinking parts of our brain and we respond almost automatically to other people's emotional information. A couple years ago when the kids were all in homeschool situation trying to, to do their work on Zoom, my daughter, Elena, who was in second grade at the time, lost a tooth in the middle of Zoom school. And she was so excited about it, as most second graders are when they lose a tooth. And so she came running out of her room, tooth in hand, in a clenched fist, yelling, Daddy, Daddy, I lost a tooth. But in her excitement, she took one of the corners a little too fast and caught the back of her clenched fist on the doorframe and ended up breaking two fingers. And as I went to meet my daughter, whose cries of excitement turned to cries of pain, I didn't need to think about what I should do in that moment. I felt her pain as though it were my own. Looking at the bruises that started forming on her hand almost immediately made me feel pain in my own hand. That is the way that we are wired to be, to respond to the world around us. When we see someone, especially someone we love in pain, we don't have to think. 
We just act. And before you assume that this is some new insight that psychologists have revealed to us in just the last few years, the answer is it's really not. Because this truth is hiding in plain sight in the gospel story that we read today. The Greek word that is used in Luke's gospel that here is translated as moved with pity is esplankaniste. And the root of this word is not your mind. It's not even your heart. The root of this word that we translate as pity or compassion is gut. It's something you feel deep down inside. And it is the same word that's used over and over to describe Jesus when he looks at a room full of people or a crowd of strangers and he is moved with compassion. There is a visceral reaction that happens in Jesus way down deep in his gut when he sees other people's pain and suffering. He is moved to respond, not to think, not to ponder, but to act. And that is the same reaction we hear from the Samaritan in the story today. He sees the man's pain and suffering, and he feels it deep in his, in his stomach. Karen Armstrong, who was a former Roman Catholic nun, who is now a philanthropist and author, writes this about the experience of compassion. Compassion is to endure something with another person, to put ourselves in somebody else's shoes, to feel her pain as though it were our own, and to enter generously into his point of view. It's a beautiful definition of compassion, one that is consistent with what we read in the gospel But we have to admit to ourselves a hard truth about compassion today. It can be hard to come by. We are all caught in a never-ending cycle of busyness where tasks seem to follow tasks and emails and phone calls and text messages never stop. We are connected and busy and preoccupied almost all of the time because we are tired and distracted and overstimulated. But there is more to that because we are constantly bombarded with bad news about more suffering happening almost every day. When we hear about escalating violence in Afghanistan and Ukraine, when we hear about more families who are dealing with the senseless tragedy of a mass shooting, of trying to figure out how they're going to move on without a loved one who died at a parade. We hear about families and individuals in our own community who are struggling with food insecurity or housing insecurity. And there is so much bubbling up in our gut that we look around and say, I can't deal with this. There is too much pain. So distancing becomes a coping mechanism for us. We learn to use our compassion like a switch, something that we can turn on and off when we need to, because otherwise we will be overwhelmed and exhausted almost all the time. And who knows, maybe this is exactly what was happening with the priest and the Levite in this story. 
I was talking with Dennis Bondolio earlier this week, and he shared a very interesting insight. He said, in that moment, in that situation, maybe the priest and the Levite checked out for just a minute. Because when they saw the man, their first sight was not of someone who was suffering, but it was blood. And they said, I can't go there. I can't contaminate my purity with another person's blood. It's against the law. And so they used their compassion switch and turned it off. Friends, I think there is a temptation for us when we read this story because we want the priest and the Levite to be bad guys. We want to say, we're not like them. We're not that cruel and heartless. We wouldn't just walk by on the other side of the road. But the truth is, these were both people who had dedicated their lives to God's service. And they probably weren't that much different from seminary students who were in a hurry to give a sermon in the next building. In fact, sometimes we are all the priest and the Levite. Sometimes I am the priest or the Levite. We tell ourselves the same kinds of stories that they probably said. This is too big. There's nothing I can do about this. Someone with more training or more knowledge needs to come along and help this situation because I don't have the experience for this. But here's the truth. No amount of seminar or training or theological education can ever accomplish what compassion can. Because we tell ourselves that the answers we're looking for are not within us. We say, maybe they're somewhere up in heaven and we need divine revelation to understand them. Maybe they're on the other side of the sea and someone else has discovered them. If this sounds familiar, it should, because this is what was happening in Deuteronomy. And God says, no, the answers you're looking for are not far away. They're not up in heaven. They're not on the other side of the sea. The answers that you need for the problems that you have been called to address are in your heart and in your mouth. And all you have to do is open yourself up to see the suffering around you and to respond with compassion, with the word of love and gentleness. Friends, I'm not here today to paint a rosy picture that everything is easy and all we need to do is be compassionate. Our world is broken and people everywhere are scared and hurt and grieving. The problems that we face truly are great and answers sometimes are not easy to come by. As faithful followers of Christ, though, we want to. We are called to make the world a better place. But it's too easy for us to look for lofty answers that seem always just out of our grasp. The revolutionary truth of the story of the Good Samaritan is this. There is great power in compassion in one person opening their heart to the needs of someone else and responding with love and with gentleness. 
The Samaritan didn't start a hospital to care for all the people who had been brutalized while they were traveling. He didn't form a committee to provide more security on this dangerous road. He saw the need in front of him. He felt it churn in his gut, and he reacted. St. Teresa of Calcutta put it this way, We won't all do great things, but we can all do small things with great love. So my challenge for us today is this. What is that one small thing that you can do today? That simple act of compassion that could make a difference in someone else's life. Look around you. There's a room full of people here. If we all committed to one act of compassion every day, that's hundreds of acts of compassion out in our community. And the thing about compassion is that it's contagious. One small act leads to another small act. And before we know it, goodness and kindness and mercy become the way that we act and conduct ourselves in the world. Small acts are how we can change the world if we allow our hearts to be moved. Amen. Let us say the Nicene Creed together. We believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all that is seen and unseen. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father, through him all things are made. For us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven. By the power of the Holy Spirit, he became incarnate from the Virgin Mary and was made man. For our sake, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried. On the third day, he rose again in accordance with the scriptures. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son. With the Father and the Son, he is worshiped and glorified. He has spoken through the prophets. We believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. We acknowledge one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. We look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. <laughs> 